The passage I'd like to turn your attention to this morning is Mark chapter 14, verses 32 through 42. Mark chapter 14, verses 32 through 42. We re-enter the story of Jesus Christ in the book of Mark as he's going into the Garden of Gethsemane. Many of you are probably pretty familiar with what happens in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's right after the Last Supper and just before Jesus' arrest. And I want to give you, as you're finding Mark chapter 14, verse 32 in your Bibles, I want to give you one good reason why you should listen to this sermon. And that goes for everybody of all ages, even the the younger, more um, squirmy ones among us. I want to give you one good reason why you should listen to this sermon really to this passage of Scripture. And that is that knowing Jesus is the most valuable thing in life. There is nothing in life worth more than knowing Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians 3.8, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So in other words, compared to knowing Jesus Everything else that seemed valuable before looks like it's worth nothing because knowing him is worth that much. And we're going to meditate on Jesus this morning. We're going to think about Jesus in Mark chapter 14. There's nothing more profitable that we could do, but we do need God's help. So if you would, let's pray together before we enter into this passage. Father, would you please speak to us through your word this morning? Your word is powerful. You created the heavens and the earth with your word. And you can create new life in us this morning through your word. And we look to you for that now. And I pray for each individual that you brought here that you would overcome all the barriers for them to be able to be receptive to your word. Barriers of doubt. Barriers of of unconfessed sin. Barriers of distraction. Tiredness. Whatever it may be, worries, concerns, preoccupations, would you remove everything that would stand between us and a soft-hearted, humble openness to your word right now? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. So as we enter back into the book of Mark here in verse 32, Mark chapter 14, we see that Jesus is extremely distressed. He takes his three closest disciples with him to the Garden of Gethsemane. He, he tells them about how sorrowful he feels, and he asks for their support. Let's read together, starting in verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Now, as we get ourselves into this garden with Jesus, I believe the main thing we're meant to notice at this point is that he is experiencing extreme suffering. It's easy to think that Jesus is sort of like Superman. I could never connect with Superman as a superhero because... He wasn't vulnerable to anything. Some bad guy could shoot him and it would just bounce off to the ground. Just couldn't understand that in my humanity. But Jesus is not like 
Superman. Jesus is fully human, just like you and just like me. And he experienced suffering and he felt emotional pain as he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. It says there in verse 33, he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And then in verse 34, his soul was very sorrowful, even to death. He was sad to death. That's how much he felt in the garden. He knows what it feels like to experience extreme emotional pain. He knows what that bowling ball heavy-heartedness feels like. You know, when your heart just feels like lead, like it weighs 500 pounds and you're bent down to the ground because your heart is just so heavy. He knows what that feels like. And he felt it here. He knows that sick-in-the-stomach feeling before something awful is about to happen. You know, you've had that feeling before. He has experienced that, and he understands that. He knows that clouded mind that you get when your emotions are intense. He knows that physical exhaustion that you feel after some extreme emotions. He was feeling extreme emotions right here because he was about to face extreme suffering. And we're going to see that he was not distressed and troubled and sorrowful because he was about to be betrayed or because he was about to be arrested or because he was about to be publicly mocked and beaten or because of the physical pain he was about to experience. There was something much more horrifying ahead for Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. So let's read on in verse 35. And going a little farther... Jesus fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words, praying the same prayer over again. So in these verses here where we see Jesus praying, we get a glimpse into the Trinity, this mysterious doctrine of the Bible, the Trinity. And we cannot fully understand it, and I won't pretend that I fully understand it or try to explain it to you, but it's this teaching that is clearly true scripturally, that God is one, just one, not three gods, one God, and yet this one God is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are all God, and yet they are not each other. So the Father is God, yet he is not the Son, and he is not the Holy Spirit. And the Son is God, and yet he is not the Father, and he is not the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is God, and yet he is not the Father, and he is not the Son. They're all God, and they're one, and yet they are not the same. They're distinct from one another. And that's as far as I'm going to even try to to get into it, because we can't understand it any more than our household cat, Charles, can understand algebra. We cannot understand the Trinity. But we can marvel at it, and we can say, man, there are glorious mysteries to our God. And we can think about it and meditate on it and be humbled by it. But what we see here, as we get this glimpse into the Trinity, into the Father and the Son's relationship, is that Jesus, even though he is God, prayed. 
The son prayed. He talked to the father. He called out to the father as his dad. That's what that word Abba most likely meant in the original, back in in the Greek. It was a real familiar term. It was what you would use for your dad. The Jews didn't like to use that term for God because they held him in such high reverence. They wouldn't speak to him as familiarly as they would to their own father. And Jesus revolutionized the relationship of God's people with God when he taught his disciples to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, to talk to him like a dad. Jesus talked to him like a dad. You know, I have a pretty good relationship with all you guys out there. We have a relationship, but there's only two of you who refer to me as dad, and that's Elias and Lillian. They have a unique relationship with me, and Jesus had that unique relationship with God the Father, and this is a whole other sermon for another day, but that's the relationship that we get adopted into when we become Christians, where we get to call God the Father our dad. But like I said, that's not what this passage is about. But that will be a good sermon one day. He depended on the Father. Verse 36, he says, All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. He doesn't say, All things are possible for me. Please bless my efforts to remove this cup from myself. Jesus Christ, the Son, depended on the Father, and he submitted to the Father. Also in verse 36, he says, Yet not what I will, but what you will. So here, God the Son, in his humanity, did not relish the thought of what was coming to him and desired escape, and yet had a deeper desire for the Father's will to be done. Now, we tread very close to heresy as we talk about the Son and the Father having perhaps desires that are somewhat different than one another. It doesn't get explained here. But we do know is that the core desire, the deepest desire, Jesus Christ, the Son, wanted the Father's will to be done, even though it was going to be incredibly painful for him. And so he submitted to the Father. He submitted to what he calls here in verse 36, this cup. He says, remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Now the cup is a powerful image throughout the Bible. In general terms, in simple terms, it just means one's lot in life given to you by God. So it's as if God was the waiter and he poured a cup full of something he chose for you and he handed it to you, and it is yours to drink. It is yours to live. It's your life given to you by God. That's sort of general terms what it means. But here it's very clear it means something very specific. When Jesus prays, remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will, he's referring to God's wrath. To understand Gethsemane and to understand Jesus Christ and to understand Christianity, we have to understand God's wrath. This this is what Jesus was sorrowful about. The cup of God's wrath was coming to him. Psalm 75 verse 8 says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. I never knew what the dregs were until I worked at the Olive Garden, and they made us become experts in wine. 
and we would have to swirl it around and know some things about wine. And the dregs are the, the streaks of wine after you have consumed the entire glass. There's sort of streaks of wine coming down the glass. It's the last little bits of the wine. It says, The wicked will have to drink the cup of my wrath down to the last dregs, down until there's nothing else dripping from the cup. God's wrath will be poured out. Now you say, well, wait a minute, that's Old Testament God. Old Testament God was wrathful, not New Testament God. New Testament God is merciful and gracious and loving and kind and forgiving. And there is no more wrath. I understand if you have an aversion to thinking about the wrath of God. It's an uncomfortable subject. It can even seem distasteful. But we are not at liberty to make up a God that fits what we think is appropriate. God has revealed himself in his word. And he is wrathful. And he still remains wrathful. He has not changed. The Bible teaches it. And in the New Testament, R.C. Sproul famous theologian, maybe you've heard of him, maybe you haven't, but he wrote, a God who is all love, all grace, all mercy, but no sovereignty, no justice, no holiness, and no wrath is an idol. That's a made-up God. That's a fictitious God. That God doesn't exist. The God who has revealed himself in the Bible is the God of Romans 1.18. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The point is that Jesus had to drink the cup of God's wrath. It wasn't optional. It wasn't an add-on. It was the core of his mission. So no, it was not possible. The Father was not going to remove the hour from him. He was not going to remove the cup from him. It's why he came. There's a theological term for it called propitiation. On the cross, Jesus dying in agony, he wasn't doing that for fun. He was doing that because he had to absorb God's wrath so that we could be saved. Because God is just, he is not going to allow sin to go unpunished. He can't. He wouldn't be just. A judge would not be right to just pardon someone who had committed a crime. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that whoever believes in him should live a really, really super-duper comfortable American dream life, have everything they ever wished for and desired, never experience any pain or suffering in this fallen world, live their best life now? No, 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 and no. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The wrath of God is coming. And either I will absorb it on that day when Jesus returns, or I will be sheltered behind Jesus Christ on the cross, and Jesus will absorb it for me. Those are the only two options. 
Jesus had to drink the cup of the wrath of God. He didn't come to defeat Rome like the people in Mark's day thought. They were very confused. They thought the Messiah was going to come and take care of all the Roman oppression, and then they were going to live lives of freedom and happiness then and there. And yet, the Messiah, what they thought Jesus was, died on the cross, and so they were really confused. That's one of the reasons Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote their Gospels, was to explain, no, he is the Messiah. He just came to save you on a whole different level than you thought. The kingdom of God is way better, way deeper, way taller, way more glorious than you thought. It's not about Rome. Rome's going to be gone anyway. It's about eternal life. And it's about God's wrath being satisfied, his justice being maintained, and yet him being able to forgive you. I don't know that we wrestle enough with this quandary of how can God forgive me when I am guilty? I mean, that's a real problem. I don't want a God who's not just. I don't want a God who just says, well, you're forgiven, no big deal. Jesus solves the problem by absorbing God's wrath on the cross, by drinking the cup that we filled up due to our sin. I heard a story once. I don't know that it's true. It's hard for me to imagine that it's true. But they made a movie out of it and said it was based on a true story. It was a story of a man who went camping, tent camping, and he tent camped in a big open field, and a storm came rolling in, and it was a vicious storm, a storm scarier than you want to happen to you when you're sleeping in a tent in an open field. The thunder shook the ground, and the lightning lit up the sky, and sure enough, lightning struck that tent where the man was, but he had brought with him their beloved family pet dog. And somehow this dog, with that canine sense of theirs, sensed that the lightning was coming and threw himself between the man and the lightning and absorbed the blast, the fiery, explosive power of that lightning enough so that the man was only injured but not killed. The dog, however, was obliterated. I don't know if that even can be true scientifically, but it's a pretty good illustration of what propitiation is what Jesus did for us on the cross. God's wrath was streaking through the sky at us, and Jesus threw his body in the way and absorbed it so that we wouldn't be killed by it. And so as he prays, he submits to the Father's will, to the cup, and he greets the hour that is there for him as the Messiah, as the Savior. Verse 40. And again he came and found the disciples sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. There in verse 41, you might have noticed he calls himself the Son of Man. We've talked about this before, but it's been a while. Throughout the book of Mark, this is Jesus' favorite way to refer to himself. He calls himself the Son of Man. In the simplest terms, it just means he is human. He was born of humans, but it means a lot more than that. And it would have meant more than that to the Jews who would have originally read this. He's inserting himself into a prophecy 
from generations before in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. So this was a reference that all these Jewish people would have understood. It would be sort of like if I started referring to myself as the dark knight. Most of you would know immediately when you hear me refer to myself as the dark knight, a whole category would open up in your mind and in your memory about Batman. You would know, well, he's referring to this whole character. That's the same thing this phrase, the son of man, would have done for the Jewish people reading this. It would have taken their minds immediately to prophecies like Daniel 7, 13 through 14. I'll read it to you. Daniel wrote, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, that's referring to God, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and tongues should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So Jesus, after his agonizing prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, stands up. He knows that he is the fulfillment of this prophecy. He is the Son of Man. He's been referring to himself as the Son of Man this this whole time in the book of Mark. And he knows that this cup of God's wrath is his destiny. So he gathers his disciples and says, let's go. It's time. The hour is here. He doesn't do it stoically. He doesn't do it like Superman. He doesn't do it as if this is not going to be literally excruciating. That's what excruciating means, is of the cross. But he goes to meet it. He has to experience the suffering. He has to submit to the Father. He has to drink the cup because he is the Son of Man. He is the Messiah. He's not just a really wise religious teacher. He's not just an extraordinarily insightful life coach. He's not just a really, really compassionate therapist. He is the Messiah, the Savior. And that's the passage about the Garden of Gethsemane. And we'll read on in the coming weeks his trials, his crucifixion, and then praise God, his resurrection. But for now, I just want to leave off here with one question. It's not a new question. It's a question I've asked before. Does your Christianity require that Jesus drink the cup of God's wrath? Does your understanding of Christianity require this? And I ask it that way because there is a counterfeit Christianity at work. It's a counterfeit. It's a Christianity that makes people believe that if they believe in God, and if they're affiliated with the church, and if they're morally a little bit cleaner than their neighbor down the road, that they're Christians. But what that counterfeit Christianity, where there's belief in God and affiliation with church and morality, what that's missing is Jesus. There are a lot of people around us who have built a whole fake lifestyle and called it Christian that doesn't require Jesus. It doesn't answer the dilemma of how a good and holy God could forgive a sinful people. I've been really heavy lately. I'm really concerned about the church. And right now I'm talking about the capital C church. 
I'm not the only one who's concerned. I'm not some great prophet or anything. Anybody with eyes can see the concerns. I'm concerned that there are going to be many people who think that they're Christians who are going to find out when Jesus returns that they were wrong and that they missed it. Jesus said so in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. He said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, the day that I return in judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, I have to imagine some of you are thinking again with this. I mean, how many times do we have to hear this? Well, at least this one more time. Because I'm not just concerned with the capital C church. I'm concerned for our church. I'm concerned for Doolin's Grove Church. I've, been, I've had that bowling ball heavy heart this week for our church. Half of us are missing. I mean, half of us are just missing. People who at some point said that they wanted to trust and follow Jesus with this body of believers. Yes, I am a Christian. I want to devote my life to obeying what Jesus, my Lord, taught and following him as my Savior. And I want to do it with you. Let's do this together. Half. Just gone. Missing. Now, I know there's dozens of different reasons and stories as to why, but generally looking at our church, where, what is going on? Where is everybody? And the half that are present are, are only here half the time. How many of us are growing in our esteem for Jesus? How many of us are growing in a spirit of repentance? How many of us are growing in our devotion to God's word? How many of us are growing in our interest in God, knowing him better, knowing him more closely, more thoroughly, understanding him better? How many of us are growing in our love for people? I had this heaviness. For some reason, last Sunday I had it. It's hard to explain. Um, There's sometimes it's hard to preach because it feels like I'm under this weighted blanket of heavy darkness. It's very difficult to explain, um, but I felt it last week. I can't put my finger on why last week. Uh, Mark, after the service, said it seemed like your voice was going to give out on you. It's even physically hard to preach sometimes. I don't know what it is, but I carried that heaviness with me on through Sunday into Monday, and in my quiet time on Monday morning, I was in the book of Second John, verse 9. It's only, it's just one chapter. It's a short book, and it kind of crystallized for me these concerns I'm feeling. It says, Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ, does not live in it, does not plant their life the way they see the world, the way they prioritize in the teaching of Christ, I mean, it says here in God's word, does not have God. Whoever abides in his teaching both has the Father and the Son. 
this is somewhat of what Mark was referring to at the beginning. I shared this with the pastoral support team. We meet and pray on Tuesdays and then Tuesday night with the board. And I, I really praise God for their response. It wasn't, well, let's come up with a church attendance program and get everybody, fill these pews up. Their response was unanimous. We need to pray. Because if these concerns are at all valid, then what we need is for God to do a work of revival in the hearts of, of the people here. So we need to pray, and so we have been praying. We prayed Tuesday morning and Tuesday evening, and many of us praying all week, and we're going to pray now. I mean, I'm, I'm not real smart. I'm not brilliant. It's very possible that I, I could be misunderstanding something about the fact that half of those associated with our church are completely absent from any meaningful fellowship with the church. But I know what God's Word says, and I know that the stakes are high. And we can, we can take it lightly for right now. We can. We can just take it lightly. But we won't be able to do that forever. Because one day, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there will come one like a son of man. We need to pray together. I want to ask you to examine yourselves as I've been examining myself. Are we abiding in the teaching of Christ? And I want us to pray for our church, anybody the Holy Spirit brings to mind. I want to pray for the church at large. I want to pray for revival, I guess. I just want to pray against the apathy, the spirit of apathy of our age, the spirit of just nonchalant, take it or leave it, I'll go worship God this Sunday, or maybe I won't. The spirit of worldliness in the church where our priorities just, match identically the priorities of non-Christians. I can't take it anymore. (laughs) I'm sick to death of it. We need God to do a work in our hearts, my heart, your heart, our church, the church, this world, because there are people who are going to face damnation.